Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case through the trial and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin continued to guide us through the conditional witness examinations roughly in the chronological order that they happened, including his thoughts on the testimonies of Linda Obst, Peter Schwartz, and Karen Minatello. In this episode, Lewin takes us into many of the details of the conditional witness examination of NYPD detective Michael Strzok, the initial investigator of Kathy Durst's disappearance. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. If there are moments where the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. Also, if at times during the interviews, John Lewin sounds like he is breathing heavier than normal, please keep in mind that many of these interviews were conducted during Lewin's non-working hours, as he was on hikes, at times with his beloved dogs, through his hilly coastal neighborhood in southwestern Los Angeles County. As you may remember, in episode four of this season, Lewin offered an overview of why NYPD detective Mike Strzok was included in the list of witnesses who were conditionally examined before the trial. Strzok, of course, was the initial investigator into Kathy Durst's disappearance, whose inquiry was marked by numerous inexplicably flawed decisions and several gobsmackingly unethical acts. In this episode, Lewin takes a much deeper dive into that testimony. In the event that you would like to revisit our jury duty coverage of Strzok's testimony as it was shown to the jury, you can find it in Season 2, Episode 5 of this podcast. Lastly, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. Tell me about the testimony of Detective Michael Strzok. So, Mike Strzok was a very interesting witness. And we basically played cat and mouse with the defense. So we always wanted to make sure that he testified. Now, we didn't have to have him testify for our case because there were enough things that Bob had admitted to regarding the statement. So if you remember, Strzok interviewed Bob on February 5th and February 8th. Neither were reported. The February 5th interview was pretty cursory. The February 8th interview was very much involved, and it was, it was, there were all kinds of notes, you know, long written statements. And we wanted to get that, that information. We had to get it from Strzok. 
Now, what made it easier for us is that between Jarecki's interview, where he literally went through the Strzok interviews and my interview, I had Bob admitting to the important things that I wanted from the Strzok interview regarding where he was, et cetera. But we still wanted Strzok. And the reason we wanted Strzok is that we wanted the jury to be able to see that this guy was there, what he was going to say in person. We did not want it to look like that we were hiding him. And most of all, we knew that the defense was going to have to pretend that Strzok and the NYPD had done a competent, maybe even good job on the original investigation. Now, of course, both sides had discovery, which showed that the original investigation wasn't just subpar, it was horrendous, and involved personal conduct by Strzok that was awful. So the problem is, how do we get the defense to call him as a witness? Because what we wanted was, we wanted a trial for the idea to be, this is their witness. They are calling Strzok to prove so-and-so. So what we did was, is we basically bluffed them. We didn't call Strzok at all in conditional examination for a long, long time. And we basically told the defense, hey, we're not going to call him. We don't need him. And then we told the defense, by the way, if you don't call him yourself and he's unavailable for trial, because he was old, this is before COVID, and something happens to him, you've had your chance. So you're not going to be able to say, well, we didn't have a chance to call him. We didn't think about it. I sent letters that basically said, hey, here's your situation. If you want to call him, you better do it. So when we didn't do it, when we didn't call him, uh, I also knew that the way DeGarrett and Chesnoff were conducting the case, and I learned this very early on, that they didn't know the case at all. But what they did know was that they based everything they did, whatever I wanted, they were against, and whatever I was against, they were for. Now, once we figured out that that's what they did, they were extremely easy to manipulate. So all I had to do was make them think that I didn't want Strzok called. So when I would send this stuff out, I knew that the discussion was going to be, well, Lewin's afraid of Strzok. He doesn't want Strzok called. And since they didn't know the case and didn't really have any strategy or tactical acumen, their idea was, well, okay, if Lewin doesn't want Strzok, then we want him. Now, the other big advantage to making them call Strzok is that they were not going to be able to ask him leading questions. He's their witness, something they never thought of. So eventually it works, and they decide they want to call Strzok. Now, the problem was Strzok didn't want to come. And one of the reasons Strzok didn't want to come is because he had a lot of health issues which were legitimate. And he also had two very elderly dogs that required shots. He needed his wife to come with him because of his health problems. And so there was no one to take care of the dogs. So the defense did not want to pay the money for his dogs to be in the vet. It was a few hundred dollars. It wasn't that expensive. And so we had to litigate that. In my position, I made it very clear, hey, listen, we have to make arrangements for our witnesses all the time. Uh, he also needed to fly business because of his back, which we did for many witnesses in the case. And the defense 
didn't want to pay for it. So we basically told him, hey, it's up to you. You don't want to pay for it. He's not going to come. And by the way, you need to go through the interstate compact process to get him out here. Now, the interstate compact process is a process when a witness is outside of the state, you have no jurisdiction. Our subpoenas only go, I think it's 150 miles. And outside the state, it's very problematic. So almost every state is a part of the interstate compact, which is an agreement that they will honor subpoenas. There's a lot of complicated paperwork. It involves us utilizing the district attorney's office in that other state. And it became very clear to me that the defense had no idea how to compel his testimony, how to even get him out here. So we offered, hey, listen, we will arrange, you know, we will contact Strzok, and we will see if we can get him to personally come out by agreement so you don't have to be interstate compact. And we often do this with many witnesses. So it wasn't that we were just doing it because we wanted him there. We always took the idea that if the defense needed help with witnesses, we would try and help them as long as they maintained a modicum of respect and civility, which at points they didn't. So we end up contacting Strzok. Strzok agrees to come out. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We continue my conversation with John Lewin as he begins his account of the moment NYPD Detective Mike Strzok took the stand as a witness for the Robert Durst defense in a pretrial conditional examination. When they start the questioning, defense knows everything. So I'm thinking that they're going to get out the fact that Strzok made all these mistakes. They're going to get out the fact that Strzok didn't do things. They're going to get out the fact that Strzok had sexual relations with a witness because they know that I know all these things. And if they don't, it's going to look like I'm going to blow them up. So, of course, Dick starts off by basically having Strzok grade himself on what an outstanding investigation he did. And I'm in shock. I literally cannot believe what I'm hearing. So they go through all their stuff, and Strzok is explaining what a great job he did. Now, I told him... Before he testified, I said, Mike, listen, I don't have any desire to embarrass you or humiliate you, but you need to own your shit. That means you need to come in there and you need to be honest about the mistakes you made, about what you did, about what you didn't do. If you don't, 
you will force me to gut you like a fish, and I will do it. So, of course, he gets up there and direct, and he's talking about what a great job he did. So I can't believe it. So I get up on cross, and basically, we took him apart, piece by piece. To make matters worse, no matter what we would point out, he would refuse to accept responsibility. He just wouldn't take it, and everybody knew it. So, Mike, why didn't you search the house at the time? Well, you know, that wasn't my focus. I couldn't do it. It wasn't in my area. Looking back, maybe I should have done it, things like that. And I would go, what was it in your area? You get search warrants all the time. Well, that was up to New York State Police. Wait a minute. It was your investigation. You controlled it. Did you get a warrant and ask him to do it? No. Was that a mistake? I wouldn't call it a mistake. That's how it went. So we took him apart piece by piece on the investigation. And then finally, at the end, I was saving the big one, which is you had sexual relations with a witness. And the defense, knowing that was going to come out, never brought it up. So any first-year lawyer, any first-year law student understands that if you have bad information on your witness and it's absolutely going to come in, you need to do it yourself unless somehow you're going to make an argument that by the prosecution bringing it up, that somehow damages their case. So he has to bring this up. They don't. And we killed him. So fast forward, we're extremely happy with this conditional examination. Extremely happy. We could not be happier. It's worked out better than we could have imagined. By the way, that was every conditional examination. Every one we thought would go great, and they went even better. Um, There were certain witnesses at trial in that conditional examination where my team was like, I don't want to call her. I think this witness isn't going to go well for us. I think it's going to be bad. And I would always push ahead and go, nope, trust me. It's going to be great, and they're going to make it even better on cross. And every time, that's what happened. So fast forward to trial. At this point in time, Struck is now it's in the middle of COVID. He has more health issues than ever. And the defense doesn't want to stipulate to his conditional examination testimony because they understood how bad it was. They also don't want to stipulate that he is unavailable, which he is. He's legally unavailable. So I explained to him, listen, guys, if you want, you can go through the interstate subpoena process and you can try to get a New Jersey judge to order a close to 80-year-old man with serious health issues in the middle of COVID to come out and testify. When you're going to have to stipulate that you had a conditional examination previously so you can memorialize his testimony so that he would not have to come back. So it's not where you were four years ago where you can argue he's material and we need him to come out. That's what you would have been able to use the first time. And I will tell you right now, I have experience in this area. There is no judge out of state when you already have a recorded three-day conditional examination with a witness who will force that witness in the middle of a pandemic to risk his life coming out here. It won't work. So we had a hearing. They, of course, never even tried. They never even tried to exercise an out-of-state subpoena. Wouldn't have worked anyway. I don't know if they still know how to do it. They didn't use it on one witness in this case. One of the things that, that is important to note is that even though the defense stipulated to all these conditional examinations, 
part of the stipulation was that if the defense wanted to bring these witnesses back during their case in chief, they could do so. Never did. So anyway, trial comes up. We have the hearing. The judge rules our way. And now we have to decide, now that he's legally unavailable. So this is different. This is not where they're stipulating to the admission of a conditional examination. He was one of the three or four witnesses where we were actually able to show, hey, we did the conditional examination, judge, and this guy's now legally unavailable. So we're going to use his testimony. At that point in time, what happens is, is you have to litigate what of his statement, his testimony comes in. So we gave them our transcript, and we had a little bit of fighting back and forth. In this next part of our conversation, Lewin segues into an explanation of one of the sections from Detective Strzok's testimony that the defense wanted to include in the video that would be presented to the jury. This testimony relates to a statement that the NYPD received from an elevator operator in Kathy Durst's Manhattan building, who suggested that Kathy was accompanied to her apartment by a man on the morning after she was last seen by Gilberta Najami. One of the games that the defense wanted to play from the start, and it just never ended, and I made a good chunk of money during the case betting with people on how many times they would continue to bring it up, people on my team. That information is the elevator operators, the doorman. So we have to go back. On February 8th or 9th, there was an article in the New York Post, and I think it may be the Daily News, talking about how Elevator operators or doormen had seen, had taken Kathy up to her apartment the night of January 31st, which is Sunday night, and that employees of the building had seen her leaving the building the next day on Monday. Now, nobody had ever reported that to the police between February 1st and February 8th or 9th, so it was very suspicious. We had gone back and spoken to the doormen and elevator operators. We were able to show that the main elevator operator, Eddie Lopez, who had made this allegation, was an alcoholic, constantly lied, and wasn't working at one of the times that he said he had seen Kathy. And we could prove that. We could also prove that there was a relationship between Bob and the building superintendent, who had allegedly seen him, seen her on Monday, and that that was bullshit. Finally, in 2000, New York State Police had gone back. They had re-interviewed Eddie Lopez. Now, Eddie Lopez, in 1982, so what happens is, is February 8th or 9th, NYPD sees this article. So they go out, and they start looking for these people. They find Eddie Lopez. Eddie Lopez gives a statement. He draws a composite of the guy that he allegedly taken up to Kathy's apartment, to the penthouse. He takes a polygraph. So the defense wanted to bring in all the Eddie Lopez stuff. Now, remember, the polygraph stuff is per se inadmissible. You can't bring it in. And yet, unethically, they continued to try to bring it up. They knew. They just didn't care. So what happened is that when Eddie Lopez is re-interviewed by Joe Becerra in 2000-2001, he backs away from his statement. He basically starts saying, I don't know, actually, I don't know who I saw. No, it wasn't Kathy that I saw. So we had interviewed everybody, and we were prepared to take Eddie Lopez's story apart. Now, the problem is Eddie Lopez died before we started looking at this case in 2013. 
or he died maybe in 13 before we were able to talk to him. There is something called pre-arrest due process delay, and that allows a defendant to say, hey, listen, you prosecuted me too late, so you waited 40 years, and now I'm prejudiced. And the way that usually comes up is that there's an alibi witness that the defendant has. Let's say it's his girlfriend. And the girlfriend said at the time of the original crime, he was with me. The girlfriend dies in the interim. And then the prosecution ends up filing the case. Now, if you can prove that the prosecution delayed filing the case to secure a tactical advantage, in other words, that they literally waited for the witness to die in order to prejudice the defendant, that's a dismissal. That never happens. What you what you are generally able to show is that, you know, they got other evidence, they filed the case, and there was no intent to gain a tactical advantage. But that doesn't matter. The defendant's going to say, well, wait a minute, it doesn't matter why you're doing it. I can't call my alibi witness. That's not fair. Now, let's forget about the fact that very likely the alibi witness, the guy's girlfriend, she's lying. Almost always. Maybe we can even prove she's lying. So what I will do in these cases, because I deal with so many cold cases, is I will agree, hey, listen, if a witness is legally unavailable, meaning they're dead, they're in a nut house, they've relocated to Argentina, we can't find them. If you show me that they're unavailable, I will stipulate that their statement that they gave is admitted in court. Now, remember, the way that it would come in, it would not be the girlfriend's testimony my boyfriend was with me that night because obviously that would benefit them. That's better than they get if she testifies. In other words, you don't accept the truth of what they're saying. The stipulation is if called, the girlfriend would testify so-and-so. However, there's proviso to that that I tell every defendant. Once you're letting in otherwise admissible statements of unavailable witnesses, any otherwise admissible statement comes in. Because I'll tell you what happens every time. Defendant wants to bring in his girlfriend's original statement, who's dead now, where she said that he was with her. But she gave another statement six weeks later where she said, you know what, I'm not sure now. And they don't want that coming in. And I will tell them, well, you don't get to play that game. Either all her admissible statements come in or none of them do. And just so it's clear... As prosecutors, we don't have a right to bring in statements of unavailable witnesses unless they previously testified or there's a hearsay exception. So this, this rule only benefits the defendant. So before preliminary hearing, I talked to each of the defense lawyers on this case individually, and I said, listen, I'm willing to stipulate to Eddie Lopez, because I know he's dead, you don't have to prove to me he's dead, to his statements. However... If you do that, I'm going to get in his later statements, and I'm going to bring in all these other witnesses that are going to impeach the shit out of him. But I'll let you do it. I don't have to, by the way. Uh, it's the smart thing to do, and it's the ethical, honest, decent thing to do, and I always offer it. That was before prelim. They refused. I told them there was a deadline originally of, like, April 2019, for all motions to be done, all requests. I sent them emails. I lodged them with the court, basically saying, hey, you have till this time. I haven't heard from you. Nothing. In April, I put it on the record again, and I tell them, you know what? I'm going to actually give you one last chance. I'm going to give you until November to file that stipulation. 
because I have to locate, I have to bring in some of the witnesses that I've interviewed who are going to impeach Eddie Lopez, and somewhere in like the Dominican Republic, it was going to be Puerto Rico, it was going to be problematic. Nothing. They don't file anything. So now we start trial in January, and they renew their motion to try to bring in Eddie Lopez stuff. More than that, they're trying to bring in polygraphs, which are per se inadmissible. So what they decided to do with Strzok was, since they've lost all that, is we're going to try to sneak in through Strzok inadmissible stuff about Eddie Lopez and the doorman. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Remember what I told you about conditional examination. At the time that we are conditionally examining Strzok, we don't know who who's going to be testifying and what statements are coming in. So the defense was allowed to cover all of the Eddie Lopez statement because if Eddie Lopez, if they decide that they want to bring it in, it has to come in through Strzok. So they cover all this stuff. And, of course, once we were editing it now for trial and none of it's coming in, we edit it all out. So they have a hissy fit, but they end up eventually agreeing to our transcript. They sign off on it. And now we place drugs conditional examination at trial. I will never forget this. DeGarrett and Chesnoff go crazy while it's being played, objecting, as if, like, A, it's a live witness, right? Like the judge can go, objection, <laughs> sustained. Um, you have to ask a different question. We're not asking questions. It's pre-recorded. So that's number one that's crazy. Number two, you're acting like there's some surprise here. You were there when he testified the first time. You signed off on the transcript. So I, I was just dumbfounded by the nerve of them to even try to litigate this. And at one point, Judge Windham, because they're going crazy, and Dick's, Dick's basically saying, this is a violation. You know, he's going nuts. And he's attacking the judge for basically letting this stuff in. Judge Windham is a very kind, decent man. Very kind. Sometimes he's too kind. and <laughs> He's too decent. So... They are basically now blaming the judge for their own stipulation. At one point, I don't know if you remember, Wyndham has heard enough of it, and he's basically like, hey, you stipulated to all this. Had you objected, some of this stuff wouldn't have come in. But this is what you wanted. So anyway, that's what happened with Mike Strzok. It was a disaster for them and worked out better than it possibly could have. Better than if, if Strzok would have come, like with the other conditional examination, there would have been objection upon objection. And, you know, and I said this before, and it's unfortunate. Judges, traditionally, if you're right on 100 issues, very few judges will rule 100 times your way. If I were a judge, and there are a couple of judges out there that do this, if I were a judge and one side is right 100 times, they're going to win 100 times. I'm not going to count it out. I'm not going to go, who did I rule for last time? Very few judges will do that. Judge Wyndham is an excellent judge. But there were certainly times in his trial where, you know, he basically gave them a couple of things because it was going so badly for them. And it's very hard as a judge when the defense and the media are saying, you know, you're biased towards the prosecution. He wasn't biased towards us. He was, unfortunately for the defense, the evidence code is biased towards the truth. And the truth of this case was that the evidence really hurt Bob Durst. So the defense is like, Judge, how can you let this in? How can you let in the stuff about Kathy? Well, for all the reasons he laid out. How can you let in the forfeiture of wrongdoing statements about Susan? For all the reasons you laid out. How can you let in the domestic violence about Kathy? 
etc. So that's what happened. Struck was a disaster for them, and they took a terrible witness for them. Terrible. They never should have called him. They called him. They clearly weren't prepared for him. Not they could have done much. Then they did not attempt to clean up the problems with him on direct, and they basically let me gut their witness. So again, the biggest reason I wanted to, that I wanted them to call them as their witness was because A, they couldn't cross them and I could, and B, I would be able to say, this is their witness. They're calling this witness to tell you what a great job he did. So that's my very long explanation about Mike Strzok. And yet you presented Mike Strzok's testimony as part of your case rather than the defense presenting it as part of their case. Were there any other witnesses where that was the case? No, only Mike Strzok because he's the only conditional witness they called. Now, the reason we were able to do that was just because one side calls a witness a conditional examination, both sides have a right to use the testimony. Now, if the defense had made a motion and said, hey, listen, judge, he's our witness, and we're going to put them on in our case, and we talked about that, that would have been great. I would have been happy to let them do that. The problem is, is that they could easily say after we rested, hey, judge, we are not going to use Mike Strzok. So what I basically told the defense is, listen, if you want to use him in your case, that's fine. You can use him. If you don't, we're going to use him. We will make a motion to reopen. The judge is going to grant it because you told us you were going to present this testimony. So you can't sandbag and basically go, we're going to call him, we're going to call him, deliberately not call him, and then say, hey, judge, they already rested. Okay? That bullshit's not going to play. So they ended up agreeing to have it played during our case in chief. It didn't matter. It would have been either way because the testimony was going to be the same. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Dursk Prosecutor Speaks. Join us in our next installment as we step back from the conditional witness examinations and discuss John Lewin's storytelling strategies as he sought to convince the jury that Robert Durst was guilty of killing Susan Berman beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, you can find our in-depth coverage of Detective Mike Strzok's testimony as it was shown to the jury in Season 2, Episode 5 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.